Hello, and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation, an unrehearsed public affairs program airing on the Columbia Broadcasting System. I've been away shoveling fresh coal into the engine, trying to keep up with the campaign of 2016, and so I'm sorry for leaving you all at the depot. But my debt to you has uh, been on my mind. Uh, In fact, that's why I'm typing this script at this very moment at 30,000 feet as I fly from one campaign event to another. So thank you for sticking with me. Uh, You're going to get me through this campaign. But let's not delay any further and get right into where we left off in 1980 in the campaign for the Democratic nomination. When we left our story the last time, Senator Edward Kennedy's tongue was trying to form coherent words in an answer to Roger Mudd's simple question, why do you want to be president? The tongue had gone rogue and Kennedy's answer ambled over hill and dale past the glade with the stream and into the deep forest. It was the calamitous launch of the Kennedy campaign, which had not, in fact, even officially started. And it tees up the big question of the 1980 campaign. Did Ted Kennedy lose to Carter because he was a bad candidate or because Carter was a lucky candidate who benefited from world events or because the ideas Kennedy was running on, an old-timey New Deal liberalism, were dead and he couldn't mount a successful campaign, even in the Democratic Party. If it was just the talent or lack of talent of the campaigners, that's one thing. But if the 1980 Democratic primary was a referendum on liberalism, then that's a bigger deal because liberalism has kind of been on the run ever since. Before we press on, first a word from our sponsor. Whistlestop is sponsored this week by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper Mattress Comes to you with a free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress by visiting casper.com slash whistlestop and using the promo code whistlestop. So, our whistlestop today is the summer of 1979, and we're on the eastern shore of Maryland. Jimmy Carter's senior campaign team is holding a meeting to talk strategy. It's the summer, and Ted Kennedy's challenge was beginning to become more active. Hamilton Jordan, one of the great campaign strategists who had led Carter's 1976 campaign at age 34, was running the meeting. Several members of the team at the time at this Eastern Shore meeting wanted to discuss how to convince Kennedy to not run, to head him off at the pass. Jordan, who was, who was known as a patient listener, shut down the conversation right away. And I rely on Tom Donlan for this account. He was, at the time, a young campaign aide. He went on to become o- President Obama's national security advisor, among other things in life. And he said Hamilton shut down the discussion in a way I'd not seen before, saying that Kennedy had been running against Carter since 1978 and that the only discussion he wanted to have was about how to beat Kennedy. So in other words, not get him not to run, but how to beat him once he did run. Jordan's view was that Kennedy was a vulnerable opponent, despite all the hype, the family name, and that Carter wanted Kennedy in the nominating race in 1980, because once Kennedy got in, Carter would pound him into the sand like a beach umbrella. The victory would make Carter a giant slayer. Kennedy was Kennedy, after all. The Kennedy family didn't lose. So if Carter beat him, that would vault him forward and help him with his re-election campaign in the general election. Well, that was a provocative notion, because in the fall of 1979, and in the summer 
when Hamilton Jordan was shutting down all talk of knocking off Kennedy. Sheridan looked like Kennedy was a weak candidate. The polls had him soaring high into the white clouds above Carter. The economy was suffering from the twin difficulties of high inflation and, and high unemployment. And the New York Times reported that Kennedy's lead over Carter in the fall of 79 was 61 to 33. And that he was preferred as the candidate, even in the South, where Carter was from, by 44 to 40. 36% of registered Democrats and 41% of self-described independent voters said they wouldn't consider voting for Carter in 1980. That's almost 40% of Democrats said they wouldn't vote for him at all. The Kennedy enthusiasm was driven not only by antipathy for Carter, but also this idea that perhaps Kennedy was, if he could win the nomination that he would be the strongest candidate against Ronald Reagan. In August of 1979, uh, there was a Yankelovich poll that found that Kennedy was the preferred candidate among Democrats by 58 to 25. So that matches the New York Times poll. But then Kennedy over Reagan, 54 to 34, 20 points beating Reagan. I guess this is in part why Hamilton Jordan thought that if Carter took him on, he would be a giant killer because Kennedy looked like a giant. And privately, Carter was worried about the the Kennedy threat. According to Peter Canellos in in his book, The Last Lion, The Fall and Rise of Ted Kennedy, Carter's pollster, Pat Cadell, did an in-depth set of interviews with people across the country in November, December of 1979. And this is what Cadell said. We asked people, okay, the election's over. Teddy is now president. How would he do? A lot of people said he'd be fantastic. Cadell brought these results to the president, who locked them in his safe and said, no one is ever to see this. This is what made Kennedy's bungling of the mud question so amazing, because people had been talking to him about the presidency for months. Hell, he'd been running for president for basically the previous 11 years. I mean, people had been basically assuming he was a president in waiting. This would be like Jeb Bush not knowing how to answer a question about the Iraq war. It's unthinkable. The first salvo in the competition between Kennedy and Carter took place at the Kennedy Library in October of 1979. Kennedy's not yet a declared candidate, and Carter and Kennedy are both making a joint appearance, tending to Jack and Bobby's legacy at the library. Carter, in his speech, knowing that Ted Kennedy was likely to run, sent a little shot across the bow. He argued basically that the world of 1980 was different than the world of 1960. And it was as different from 1960 as 1960 was from 1940. Now, you remember that when Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, ran in 1960, he said he was representing a a new generation for a new world. So here you have Carter basically saying in the same way uh, that Kennedy said his world was different from the world Eisenhower came from. Carter was essentially saying the 1980s are far different than the world Jack Kennedy came from. So, Ted Kennedy, you may be trying to draft off of this family history and legacy, but it ain't applicable to modern times. And this is what Carter said at that meeting. The desk in the Oval Office, which I use, is the same one that John F. Kennedy sat behind. But the problems that land on my desk are quite different. We have a keen appreciation of the limits now, the limits of government, the limits of the use of military power abroad, said Carter. 
So the implications were obvious. It wasn't just that the Kennedy legacy could no longer be applied to the modern day, but that that limitless liberal big government that Kennedy believed in was no longer applicable in a world of limits. Of course, this is just the thing that got Democrats so irritated with Carter because Carter was cutting the deficit, trying to squeeze government. This is part of what alienated Carter to his Democratic base, who compared him to Herbert Hoover. House Speaker Tip O'Neill believed that a lot of representatives in the Democratic Party simply feared that if Carter was renominated, they'd lose their seats. And the New York Times reported that dozens of congressional Democrats were moving towards urging Carter to step aside in 1980 because they thought that so many Democratic voters would stay at home that the House, in this case, we're talking about Tip O'Neill, so it would have been the House candidates who would suffer, as Republicans did after Watergate. The Congressional Black Caucus, representing a constituency thought to be loyal to Carter, endorsed Kennedy. One of the architects of Carter's victory in 1976 in Pennsylvania came out for Kennedy. Senator Dick Clark quit his job as the administration coordinator for refugee affairs to work full-time for Kennedy. The only good news coming is when Senator Joe Biden called to say, and we know this from Carter's diaries, Biden called him up to say that he'd polled 14 senators who were up for re-election in 1980, and none of them wanted Kennedy to run, except for one. But then fate intervened. Or rather, a group of Iranian students belonging to the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line intervened. They were supporting the Iranian revolution, and they took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran, seized 52 American diplomats and citizens. And though the hostage crisis would drag on for 444 days, it was initially a huge boon for Carter's political standing. The country rallied around him. And this put Kennedy in a box because he had to be careful not to look unpatriotic while the president was dealing with a foreign crisis. But the show must go on. So four days after the hostages are taken, and just a few days after the Mudd interview aired, with the negative reviews that that brought, Ted Kennedy and his gargantuan press entourage arrived in two different planes, one of which was dubbed, as you may remember, Air Malaise, after the term that was associated with Carter's crisis of confidence speech. The two planes arrive in Boston on a beautiful fall day where Kennedy will announce his candidacy inside at Faneuil Hall. His brothers had announced their presidential campaigns in the Russell Senate office building, but not Ted Kennedy. Although the memory of his brothers was always, of course, in the background, it was so real, the memory of those two brothers who had been assassinated, that Carter extended the offer of Secret Service protection to Kennedy a month before he actually had declared, thinking basically that the publicity of Kennedy's coming candidacy would make him a political target. Kennedy looks pretty trim in that speech. For those of you who may remember a Kennedy of later in his life, uh, when he was a little bit more stocky and stout, and he spoke in a really wonderful, thick Massachusetts accent, which went away a little bit later in his life, too. I mean, he still had a thick one, but not like this. And here we will listen to the money moment of this speech. But listen for the applause, which will give you a little behind the scenes of how crowd management is done at a speech like this, because the crowd is pretty much silent. But then they are goosed by a few really hard early claps, and then the place erupts like it's the winning shot at a 
Boston Celtics game. I mean, what Kennedy's saying is not so outstanding, but the crowd has all been primed and put in place so that when he reaches the crescendo moment, they're all told to go bonkers. So let's listen to Senator Kennedy. For many months, we have been sinking into crisis, yet we hear no clear summons from the center of power. Aims are not set. The means of realizing them are neglected. Conflicts and directions confuse our purpose. Government falters. Fear spreads that our leaders have resigned themselves to retreat. This country is not prepared to sound retreat. It is ready to advance. It is willing to make a stand, and so am I. While Kennedy was hitting the trail, Carter was retreating from it. The hostage crisis allowed Carter to initiate what became known as the Rose Garden strategy. So he dropped out of the campaign saying he wouldn't be concerning himself with national politics while the crisis continued. Speaking to the country, Carter said, Abraham Lincoln said, I have but one task, and that is to save the Union. Now I must devote my considered efforts to resolving the Iranian crisis. Having just compared himself to Lincoln, uh, which most of us would only do at night in the bathrobe when... But he left the campaigning to Mondale, his vice president. Then, to further scramble the international situation and block Kennedy's advance, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan on Christmas Day. So every day, the president would be seen delivering sober, thoughtful messages about the world and what troubles they faced with the backdrop of the White House, while Kennedy wandered around through diners and overheated high school gymnasiums in early primary and caucus states. On December 28th, Carter announced, because he had to monitor two overseas crises, he would be unable to participate in the debate which had been set for January 7th among the Democratic candidates. That was a huge blow to Kennedy, who had counted on the opportunity to confront Carter face-to-face. Carter privately told his diary the real reason he was ducking the debate. It's inconceivable to me, he wrote, that they, meaning his political advisors, would pursue the matter of the debate, because it's obviously counterproductive politically. When we decided to do the debate, it was just me and Kennedy. Kennedy was two to one ahead of me in the polls, and we didn't have the Iranian crisis on my shoulders. Now all those factors have changed. Rosalind thinks I'm right. It's fun to read the Carter Diaries. So often entries end with, Rosalind thinks I'm right, which both tells you the primacy of her relationship in his life and presidency and the way in which he leaned on her counsel and approval to kind of get him through his tricky and rocky presidency. As President Carter announced his cancer diagnosis in mid-August of 2015, he was asked about the greatest thing that had happened in his life, and he named marrying Rosalind Carter. The country rallied to Carter after the hostage crisis. In a December poll, he was ahead of Kennedy 48 to 40, and far ahead in a general election matchup against Reagan in, in a January 1 poll had Carter leading Kennedy by 20 points. 80% of the country, according to the Roper Center, was confident in Carter's ability to handle the crisis. It was a huge shot in the arm. Think about that. He was up by 20 points over Kennedy. He'd been down by 20 points when Kennedy had gotten into the race and in the summer. So it's all turned around for him. 
Carter wrote in his diary on January uh, December 9th, the evening news reported that the Ayatollah had come out against me for president, which will give another boost to our campaign. The mayor in one Iowa town publicly switched his support from Kennedy to Carter, saying he was impressed with Carter's handling of Iran. And a Congressman Howard of New Jersey did the same. Kennedy, on the other hand, wasn't handling the crisis very well at all. He criticized the U.S. support for the Shah in early December in an interview with the San Francisco TV station, saying that the Shah, quote, ran one of the most violent regimes in the history of mankind in the form of terrorism and the basic and fundamental violations of human rights in the most cruel circumstances to his own people. Everyone, including George Bush, said Kennedy was giving aid and comfort to the Iranian hostage takers. Iowa, the first contest where Carter had done so well in 1976, really launching his campaign. Here was his strategy as he wrote about it in October of 1979. We're going to go all out to win in Iowa and New Hampshire and convince the American people that a vote for Kennedy in the primaries is the equivalent of a vote for him for president. According to polls, Kennedy has the qualifications of an exciting candidate, but very negative image as an actual president. The more we change towards a general election attitude, the better off we would be. And the crisis with Russia and Iran helped frame the debate in terms of the general election. People started to think about the competition, not just in terms of ideals, but in terms of who could deal with the job and all the crises that it entailed. So it wasn't just rallying around the president, but it was putting it in a frame that would evaluate Kennedy in a way that helped Carter more. Kennedy's strategy was to hit Carter right in Iowa. So they were both putting all their chips in the state of Iowa. But the problem with Kennedy in, in Iowa was that he wasn't campaigning very well. According to Newsweek, quote, he sometimes sound like Dwight Eisenhower delivering Franklin Delano Roosevelt speeches, dropping malaprops like fam farmilies. Sometimes when Kennedy was trying to say farm families, he would say fam families, or he would say, roll up your sleeves and your mothers and your fathers. He also wasn't saying much when he was out there. So he was saying it poorly and not saying very much. Bob Schramm, Kennedy's advisor, argued for a traditional liberal campaign, while others, future Senator Gary Hart, who had run McGovern's successful campaign, pushed for kind of non-issues and said Kennedy should put his emphasis on leadership. Hart won out in those early battles. It was driven by the assumption that the primaries were kind of guaranteed for Kennedy and that he should prepare himself for the November fight by appearing presidential, talking about leadership. Again, recognizing what Carter had written in his diary, that Kennedy had to kind of frame himself as presidential material and that he should present himself as a candidate of control, whereas Carter was a candidate of lack of control. Kennedy going into the Iowa caucuses was about the kind of style of government not the gut issues that somebody like Schramm and liberals wanted to have him campaign on, which is why one Iowan said, when he came out here in 1978, it was like a shot of adrenaline to your heart. You had to be for him, but now it's all gone. So Kennedy lost the Iowa caucuses by a whopping 59 to 31%. Kennedy's sister Eunice tried to comfort Kennedy as the results came in and said, you still have me. And he said, I'd rather have Iowa. Carter, by the way, won the Iowa caucuses without ever having to set foot in the state. The idea that this campaign fight against Kennedy was going to be a great boon for Carter, the idea that we started this episode with, that uh, Hamilton Jordan had articulated, was, was now quite alive and well. And Carter was buying into this theory. He wrote about a conversation that he had with Clark Clifford. 
Clifford said it would be a great achievement for me to defeat Kennedy with momentum going into the general election. An opponent like Kennedy kept us on our toes. He mentioned, Clark Clifford did, the fisherman who caught a delicious fish called Turbo, but found in the tanks in their vessels the Turbo got fat and lost their flavor. Putting in one small barracuda in the tank kept thousands of fish lean and tasty, and the barracuda only ate three or four fish. After the Iowa caucus drubbing, the Kennedy forces gathered in his uh, Senate office to figure out whether Kennedy should drop out. There were eight of them in the office, including in addition to the senator, and they took a vote and four said he should stay in. Four said he should drop out. The senator himself broke the tie by saying he was going to stay in, and he said, let's get ready and go. So at this point, the Kennedy forces had to figure out what to do. They hadn't been sort of true to their principles in the caucus setting. So they decided to go long and deep on the liberal message, and they framed it around a speech Kennedy would give at Georgetown University. He'd stop temporizing and tiptoeing around, and he'd take on Carter on the issues and announce the guts of what he was really running for. At some point in in a campaign, the diehard supporters of a candidate will demand that the candidate be allowed to be himself. So there was a call in 1980 to let Reagan be Reagan. And in this case, it was to let Kennedy be Kennedy, be the liberal warrior that he was at heart. He needed to stop being safe in order to win the general election for fear of being so safe that he would lose the primary. So in January 28, Kennedy spoke at Georgetown University and took on Carter's foreign policy stewardship. He noted that Hitler's conquest in France had not stopped public or presidential debate in 1940 and said, quote, if the Vietnam War taught us anything, it is precisely that when we do not debate our foreign policy, we may drift into deeper trouble. Kennedy said Carter had misread early warning signs about Afghanistan and had been caught by surprise when the Soviets invaded. It is less than a year since the Vienna summit when President Carter kissed President Brezhnev on the cheek, said Kennedy. We cannot afford a foreign policy based on the pangs of unrequited love. Kennedy also broke with mainstream public opinion by arguing that U.S. support for the Shah had invited the Iranian revolution. This wasn't just a foreign policy vision that Kennedy was delivering. What he did at Georgetown was try to lay out a platform for the entire liberal wing of the Democratic Party and its dream of social progress. Uh, He supported controls on wages and prices, a six-month freeze on inflation, legislation for equality for women and gays, a farm bill that would bail out farms, and uh, support for a public health system. It really rallied people to his side, particularly blue-collar Catholic voters, his political director Bill Carrick said. Voters rallied in more specific messages. They identify with them, with their hopes and aspirations. Kennedy was sending not just a message about the specifics, but about the the strength of his fight. And in fact, he ended with the refrain, I have only just begun to fight. So it was a message to Democrats. Yes, I may have lost the Iowa caucuses, but I'm in this. What a pleasure it is to see, the conservative columnist William Sapphire wrote, the chastened man shake his head clear, get up off the floor And by dint of the emotional and intellectual efforts of a powerful speech, give his political campaign life and give his political life meaning. Carter responded to Kennedy by throwing the penalty flag. He said, the thrust of what Senator Kennedy has said throughout the last few weeks is going to be very damaging to our country and to the establishment of our principles and the maintenance of them. 
and to the achievement of our goals to keep the peace and get our hostages released. So Kennedy gives this big speech at Georgetown, but then he just continues to lose. He lost the Maine caucuses, the New Hampshire primary, the Vermont primary. He was a loser, but he wasn't going away. Remember, I've only just begun to fight. Then came a series of Southern primaries. Because Carter controlled the Democratic National Committee, his strategists could front load the primaries with Southern states. So that gave the incumbent an advantage before the Northern Western and Western states where Carter didn't have a natural base. But then came Illinois, where Kennedy had aligned himself with Chicago's unpopular mayor, Jane Byrne. The endorsement for Kennedy from Byrne when it came in October 1979 was a bit of a coup. And it irritated Carter, who wrote in his journal, Jane Byrne announced that she would support Kennedy, violating a direct, unequivocal commitment to Jack Watson, to Rosalind, and to me personally. This is a rare event in politics when somebody deliberately lies. But by the time the primary rolled around, Byrne was not popular. And Kennedy, who had promised to walk with her in the St. Patrick's Day parade, she was so toxic that, that at the march, he literally was trying to distance himself from her. As one account put it, he spent time darting to one side and then the other like a hummingbird. Kennedy also had his own problems. People were yelling from the parade route, where's Mary Jo? Which was a reference to Mary Jo Kopechny, who had died at Chappaquiddick when the car Kennedy was driving crashed and plunged off of a bridge into the water. Kennedy survived. Mary Jo did not. Carter wrote after the Illinois primary where he clobbered Kennedy, it is difficult for us to maintain the posture of an underdog. But then the tide starts to turn in Kennedy's favor. The New York primary is what kicked it off. In advance of the primary, Kennedy launched a powerful television ad using the star of the popular sitcom at the time, Archie Bunker. Now, the character of Archie Bunker, I think it's fair to say, would be a modern Tea Party voter. He's unhappy with the direction of the government and also irritated at the cultural changes, the political correctness. But the actor behind Archie Bunker was Carol O'Connor, and he was a liberal, and he came to Kennedy's rescue. So in this ad, he looked directly into the camera and told the voters, quote, Carter is the most Republican president since Herbert Hoover. Jimmy's depression is going to be worse than Hoover's. And then the spot ended with a tagline, Kennedy for president. We gotta fight back. Then there was another boost that helped Kennedy in New York, and that came at the United Nations on March 1st, 1980. The UN Security Council voted to reprimand Israel for building settlements on the occupied West Bank of the Jordan River, and the UN Security Council concluded that those settlements had no legal standing. Instead of abstaining, as the United States had in the past, and did on just in general on anti-Israeli votes, Carter's UN ambassador voted yes. <laughs> it was a principled thing to do, but very unpopular in New York. The outrage among New York's large Jewish community was immediate and painful, and a lot of Jewish leaders started to campaign against Carter. Kennedy's political man, Bill Carrick, said, Carter looked like he was winning, meaning in the primaries. And then people woke up and said, oh my God, Carter's winning. Now the notion started to bounce around in political circles that maybe Carter had won those early primaries and caucuses because 
people were rallying around him, but that, in truth, absent the false propping up of foreign crises, he was a flawed candidate, and that New York had exposed that, that the New York primary had exposed that. Kennedy went on to win in Connecticut, which meant New York wasn't just a fluke. So Kennedy started to get a little blood in his mouth, and he started to yell. In one time he yelled, you've got to come out and face the American people sometime, he told Carter, who was still running that Rose Garden strategy. Then came the Pennsylvania primary. Going into Pennsylvania, two things were happening. One, Kennedy looked like he was coalescing a group of voters around his liberal policies. And it was blacks, liberals, and even some blue-collar conservatives who liked the economic message. Plus, the bloom was coming off the Rose Garden strategy, and Carter was no longer benefiting from the rallying around the flag issue. So the Carter forces started to panic. And Pat Cadelli's pollster remembers it this way. That's when I pulled the trigger on the character issue. He's talking about an ad campaign that the Carter forces would run on Chappaquiddick. Cadell remembers arriving at the decision this way. Yes, it would do irreparable damage if we talk about Chappaquiddick. He'll never forgive us. But we'd have lost Pennsylvania by 20 points or more. Even with the delegate lead, what happens if we lose all the remaining primaries? Cadell is terrified that this will begin a wave against Carter. And so he runs ads in Pennsylvania making an attack more explicit on Chappaquiddick, which Carter had been poking at Chappaquiddick all along, running ads that said he was a husband, father, and president, three jobs he'd done with distinction. When you talk about husband and father, he's it's an implicit criticism on Ken- at Kennedy. Anyway, now the criticism was going to be more explicit. And the ads that were run by Cadell in Pennsylvania were a series of spots where average people were looking into the camera and saying, I don't trust him. I don't believe him. And the ad blitz appears to have been successful because in the end, Kennedy barely scratched out a victory. So you had a situation in the Democratic primary that's not unlike what we see today. Carter beat Kennedy on questions of trust and character by three to one, but Kennedy beat the president six to one on issues of leadership. Right now in the Republican primary, you have a situation where voters don't trust Donald Trump, but they think he's the better leader. Kennedy won in California by a large margin and then in New Jersey, but then he lost in Ohio and then Carter went on to win a whole slew of remaining primary races. So there was the burst of New Hampshire, Connecticut, California, Pennsylvania for Kennedy, but essentially in the end, he ran out of gas. And so when the primaries were over, Carter had won enough delegates to be renominated, but because Kennedy had had those bursts, he didn't concede because his argument was that the shield of foreign policy and the shield of the country rallying around Carter was artificial and had started to weaken in these later primaries. He was aided in this argument by a summer effort to rescue the hostages, which went terribly wrong. Uh, Helicopters crashed in the desert, killing U.S. servicemen. So on the 5th of June... With Carter having enough delegates to go to the convention and win, but with Kennedy not dropping out of the race, Kennedy went to the White House and visited the president. And here's how Carter described it in his diary. I met with Kennedy, who came in apparently completely obsessed. 
It took him about an hour to fumble around and say we still had issues dividing us and needed to have a personal debate in front of the TV cameras in order to resolve those differences. Other accounts of the meeting say it was much more acrimonious, where Carter accused Kennedy of essentially helping Ronald Reagan by tearing down Carter during the primaries. At the end of the meeting, Kennedy refused to endorse Carter if Carter was nominated at the convention, and he said that unless Carter debated him, he would not throw his support behind Carter, and he would fight him all the way to the convention. In his diary, Carter said that what he recognized in Kennedy was it was the first time that the electorate had ever rebuffed a Kennedy, and that that's what the senator couldn't get over. Carter considered Kennedy's idea of having a debate because he wanted to be done with him. And so he took him at his word and he said, all right, let me think about maybe debating you because you'll drop out after I debate you and we air these issues. So he could use the free airtime to pitch himself for the general election and all of Carter's cabinet agreed. So it was basically moving forward towards having this debate. But then Carter uh, talked to his vice president, Walter Mondale, who was totally opposed to the idea. His argument was that the debate would elevate Kennedy. And then if if Kennedy was elevated, he would say, screw it. I'm not going to keep my previous promise to drop out. I'm going to just head on to the convention, use the bounce of the debate to unpledge those delegates from you. So Carter totally switched his position and decided to take the fight to the convention. When he did so, he called Tom Donilon, who, remember, he was that young aide who told us the story about Hamilton Jordan from the beginning of this episode, and he told Donilon the bad news that Kennedy was going to be contesting it. And Donilon, who would be in charge of making sure that the delegates who had been pledged to Carter would stay with Carter. So Donilon had the job at the tactical ground level of making sure those commitments stuck. Those were the commitments Kennedy was going to try to unbuckle and pry out. Donilon says after he put down the phone from the president, he went down the hall to the bathroom and threw up. By refusing to debate Kennedy, Carter had basically denied him an off-ramp. And so Kennedy took the fight to the convention. He had fewer delegates, but he was going to try and convince those delegates to switch. And like those other convention fights we've seen, there was a rules fight here. And on the one hand, you had a bunch of Democrats who were furious that Kennedy would try and destroy the chief executive of his own party. But you had others who were susceptible to Kennedy's argument that Carter was weak and would lose to Reagan, so they had to boot him out. There were a few senators, Patrick Moynihan, Scoop Jackson, Robert Byrd, who agreed with Kennedy and rallied around his argument for changing the rules. The rule that we're talking about here was what they called the robot rule. And they called it the robot rule because it meant if you you had to vote like a robot. So you were programmed, if you were pledged by the outcome of the primaries to vote for Carter, then you had to behave like a robot and vote for Carter. There were these other Democrats, those senators I mentioned, who said the robot rule should go away. So the debate on the rule became the proxy for the entire nomination. So should Kennedy persuade the delegates to overturn the robot rule, it would mean that there was a new race and Madison Square Garden, where this was all taking place, would have erupted into pandemonium. So... Carter needed to win that rules fight, and that was Donlin's job. Because the Carter team controlled the rules process and controlled the schedule, they said, we're going to have this fight on the rules before Ted Kennedy ever gets to speak. And the point was, the reason for doing this, was that if the vote were held after Kennedy spoke, if Kennedy gave a big rousing speech, whipping up the troops, then 
Carter could face a revolt, lose the vote on the robot rule, unbinding those delegates, and then those delegates would vote for Kennedy. So the convention opened with everyone concerned about unity. Mo Udall, the very uh, amusing Arizona congressman, spoke at the opening of the convention and said, let me recommend Dr. Udall's patented unity medicine. Take one tablespoon, close your eyes, and repeat, President Ronald Reagan. The Carter team had a group of young volunteers who were called the gerbils, who used the latest computer and radio technology to manage the floor, checking in on those delegates, making sure they weren't going to slip away somehow and vote for Kennedy. And they sweated it out. But in the end, on that robot rule, Carter prevailed by a pretty good margin, like about 1,900 to 1,300 in in delegate votes. Some of his delegates abandoned him on that robot rule, but the contest was essentially over. And Kennedy watched from his hotel room and basically said, "Okay, that's it. I'm going to withdraw. He spoke to Carter. Carter asked Kennedy if he would join him in the famous show of unity on the platform. And Kennedy didn't answer. So Carter wrote in his diary about Tom Donlin, who had won that robot rule fight. As we walked through the crowd of people in our headquarters, I could hear them shouting, Donlin for president. There's one more fight, though, and this is what created the emotional groundswell around Teddy Kennedy and that ultimately undermined Jimmy Carter. Though Kennedy had lost the big contest, wasn't going to get the nomination, there was still a fight over the platform, and Kennedy was pushing for a series of liberal policies, um, his own platform called a rededication of democratic principles, and he wanted to basically have the party dedicate itself to a very activist government, to reindustrialize America, rebuild the cities, the welfare system. There was, uh, there was an anti-recession stimulus bill, a billion dollars for railroad spending, support for the ERA, Equal Rights Amendment, support for abortion on demand, a moratorium on nuclear power, end to the draft, and universal health care. And what I love about this is that also Kennedy, uh, his platform program mandated a special commission on platform accountability that would threaten any Democratic Party official with a withdrawal of the endorsement of the party if that candidate, you know, running anywhere on the ballot, didn't pledge fealty to the principles of this platform. So there's a tussle over the specifics in the platform committee. And Carter's original platform was very vague and was kind of like his presidency as liberals saw it, which was vague and not really standing up for liberal principles. So before the platform vote was taken on the specifics of the platform, whether it would include the Carter platform or the Kennedy platform, the senator finally gets his chance to speak. And remember, the the committee had blocked his speech before the robot rule vote for fear that it would whip up the crowd and, and they'd lose control. And they were right to be worried. And what ultimately happened proved there the wisdom Because Ted Kennedy, who had had so much trouble speaking on the campaign trail, won the hearts and minds of many of the delegates in the hall. Here's a portion from the beginning of the speech. The commitment I seek is not to outworn Jews, but to old values that will never wear out. Programs may sometimes become obsolete, but the ideal of fairness always endures. Circumstances may change, but the work of compassion must continue. It is surely correct that we cannot solve problems by throwing money at them, but it is also correct that we dare not throw out our national problems onto a scrap heap of inattention and indifference. The poor may be out of political fashion, but they are not without human needs. 
The middle class may be angry, but they have not lost the dream that all Americans can advance together. What Kennedy was saying here was he was answering what Carter had said back at the Kennedy Library in October of 79, the previous year. The Kennedy flame had not died out, of course, and there were values and fights that would never die, the enduring stuff of the Democratic Party. But it was Kennedy's concluding words that became so famous. For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. After Kennedy spoke, the auditorium erupted. The applause and cheers went on, according to one account, for half an hour. Delegates chanted, we want Ted, we want Ted, repeatedly, and the band, which was under control of the Carter forces, kicked up. Happy days are here again to kind of try and drown out the calls for Ted. They had the vote on the platform, and everything that Kennedy had wanted was adopted. Now you've got the situation where Kennedy is lost, but the whole hall loves him, and his platform is now the platform that this president is supposed to run on. And now it's time for Carter to give his speech. Now, this is not, you remember 1976, Ford gives his acceptance speech, accepts the nomination, then calls Reagan down, and Reagan basically gives his wonderful speech that everybody loved right after Ford did. Well, Kennedy gave his speech that everybody loved a couple of days beforehand, so Carter wouldn't have to face his rival on the same night as Kennedy's powerful speech. After Kennedy gave his powerful speech about the dream never dying, Newsweek wrote... Carter's hour of triumph was shadowed by a rush of nostalgia for his defeated rival and by the plain unenthusiasm of his party for him or his prospects. So Carter gives his acceptance speech and before it, Kennedy's advisors had told him he had to engage in the traditional unity posture, which is where both men would clasp their hands and raise them in the air. Kennedy even practiced this bit of theater with Bob Shrum in his hotel room at the Waldorf Astoria. Shrum forced Kennedy to do it over and over again, and as they arrived in the garden for Carter's acceptance speech, Shrum said, don't forget, to Senator Kennedy. Carter's speech, of course, didn't rival Kennedy's. He tried to really punch something powerful out there, but it wasn't really coming. He tried to praise Hubert Horatio Humphrey, stalwart of liberal causes from Minnesota. But when he tried to praise Senator Humphrey, he called him Hubert Horatio Hornblower. So it was a tough night for, for Carter. But when Kennedy finally did come to the stage, as he promised, Carter has accepted the nomination, given the speech, he's on the stage. He and Carter sort of shook hands, but to many, it looked perfunctory. And that hand raising, that hand clasping and raising the hands up in the air, that never happened. Carter wrote in his diary, he seemed to have had a few drinks, he wrote about Kennedy, which I probably would have done myself. He was fairly cool and reserved. I thought it was adequate, but the press made a big deal of it. Yes, indeed, the press did make a big deal of it because it didn't look like this was a unified party at all. It had obviously, in the end, been a disaster to not try to head off Ted Kennedy before he launched his campaign. And Hamilton Jordan came to recognize this. In fact, on June 25th of 1980, you know, he was the author of the giant killer Kennedy strategy, and he wrote an eyes-only memo for Carter addressing the problems facing the campaign. And, and the picture was grim. 
Jordan wrote, The Kennedy challenge hurt us very badly, not only within the Democratic Party, but with the electorate as a whole. Because the process had been going on for a year, Jordan wrote, the American people today are sick of the process and tired of the candidates. Kennedy sustained and exaggerated attacks on your record and his unrealistic promises have alienated key groups in the Democratic Party by obscuring the solid record we have. The Kennedy attacks, reinforced by the media's natural tendency to see everything in the context of the campaign, have made you seem like the manipulative politician bent on re-election at all costs and not the man the, and the president that you are. Jordan ended as follows. For all of the reasons presented here, we have come out of this primary year and the unsuccessful Kennedy challenge not enhanced or strengthened by the contest, but damaged severely. And this would become his historical view as well. Later, many years later, he was interviewed by the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, and he was asked how much damage the Kennedy challenge had done to Carter in the general election against Reagan. And Jordan said, it was the single critical factor in his defeat. When people ask me why we were defeated, I say the hostage crisis, which was seen as a failure of Carter to free the people after being held for so long, the general state of the economy, and the Kennedy challenge. Of those three problems, the most significant was the Kennedy challenge. If we'd had the whole year to pull the party together and try to work on the economy, I think Carter would, or could at least, have won. Conservative Republican Ronald Reagan was elected 51 to 41%, a landslide, and the GOP gained the majority in the Senate. For the first time, they had control over Congress since 1954. 1980 was a bad year for Democrats, and so it's basically considered the ending point of the party's post-war domination and the death of, of liberalism. So the question is what to make of Kennedy's challenge in the end. Timothy Stanley, whose work in uh, the book Kennedy versus Carter, the 1980 battle for the Democratic Party's soul, which I've relied on for in the previous account, in that book, Stanley writes, although Kennedy was ultimately unsuccessful, his crusade to rebuild the ailing New Deal coalition was energetic and popular enough to suggest that America was not quite as profoundly conservative a country in the 1970s as many historians and political scientists have hitherto suggested. So this is an interesting theory, because remember, the Reagan Democrats are a big part of his 1980 general election story and victory. And that story is that blue-collar workers who were attracted to the Democratic Party for economic reasons were nevertheless culturally conservative and didn't like the Democratic Party with its emphasis on women's rights and its alliance with the social protest and peace movements. And therefore, because they had those cultural aversions and difficulties with the Democratic Party, they went over to Reagan. But what Stanley is arguing is that Kennedy, who was for all of those liberal policies, nevertheless had an economic plan that was appealing to blue-collar economic interests, and that if he'd been the nominee, his economic plans and programs and passion and willingness to fight for the regular guy would have blunted Reagan's appeal to the cultural dis dissatisfaction among those blue-collar workers. I think that feels maybe like a bit of a stretch, also given Kennedy's highly spotty skills uh, or lack of skills as a campaigner. It's not really clear that he could have sold the package of New Deal liberalism in a general election in a successful way. But in any event, it was not until 2008 that the Democratic ticket would ever again win the majority of the popular vote in a presidential election. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Casper, the online retailer of premium mattresses, which you can get for a fraction of the price. 
Get $50 off towards any mattress by visiting casper.com slash whistlestop and use the promo code whistlestop. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com or even better, leave us a review on the at the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Mike Wolo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who, unlike your host, has kept up his duties faithfully, gathering fresh research and stacking it outside the Whistlestop World Headquarters right next to the Garden Gnome. But for now, I'm John Dickerson. I will be back soon with another edition of Whistlestop as soon as my little fingers can type it up. Thanks for listening.